Okay, so, what's the most misused word in the Christian life? Uh, there are a few contenders, uh, aren't there? Short, as in this will only be a short meeting, you know, the type. Contemporary, as in contemporary Christian music, that it was probably at some point up to date, but probably sometime in the 1980s, and it normally came out in the 1990s, so it never quite worked, did it? But I want to put forward the case this morning for the word balance. The idea of balance is often this idea, you've got one extreme over here, one extreme over here, and the goal really of the Christian is to find somewhere uh, in the middle. And somehow when you find that spot, the problems are all wonderfully resolved. But life's a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? You can't just go, uh, this is where you would have some diagrams on the screen, you know, is Jesus God or is Jesus man? And you know, if you find a balance, well that's somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, he's half God, half man. Well, that's not right, is it? Actually, he's fully God and fully man. Well, what about when you take the ideas that God is one and three? Well, if we take the balance approach, we end up in the middle, which is two, which is definitely wrong, isn't it? He's one and three. But that's for another talk, another day. But what has this got to do with what we're looking at this morning? Well, there's a big school of thought that puts the Christian life like this. You've got legalism over here in one side, and you've got lost in sin uh, over here on the other. And the goal is to sort of find a balance somewhere in the middle. Not too legalistic, but not too sinful either. But what you end up with then is actually a sort of a bit legalistic and a bit sinful. Is that the best that we can hope for? Uh, hope for Halfway between two bad visions of the Christian life. We don't want, and we don't want Christians who tend to struggle with legalism. The goal is not to become a bit more sinful. That's not the goal, is it? To sort of move along. And equally, the, the people who are a bit uh, sinful, we don't want them to become a bit more legalistic. Balance here is not what we're looking for. Paul, last time, uh, in our last passage in Galatians, began to paint a positive picture of the Christian life. Not just not legalism, but equally, as we're going to see this time, not just not a license to sin. He's going to give us something positive, a completely different vision of the Christian life. And he started in verse 13 of, uh, of this chapter. He said, through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. That is Paul's vision, God's vision, for the day-to-day -day Christian life. That is faith working through love, verse 6. That's how we stand firm together, verse 1. Through love, serve one another. And Paul now begins to show us what that looks like. This is not a get-out clause, a, a, a way that we can just get into laxness and sin through the back door. Because actually some of Paul's opponents were saying that. They were saying if you get rid of legalism, if you get rid of the law, then really you're just creating a license to sin. They saw things on, on that sort of scale uh, between those two things. So Paul needs to show them that this new way does not lead to sin, but quite the opposite. What they haven't taken into account is the Holy Spirit. And so our first point this morning is the flesh spirit battle. That's from verses 16 uh, to 18. Let me read them to you again. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The spirit Paul refers to here is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul's already talked about him in the letter. In Galatians 3, 2 and 3, he said this, Let me ask you this only. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, the Holy Spirit dwells in believers from the moment they first hear the gospel and believe it. He's actually working at that time to change our hearts so that we believe the gospel in the first place. So that we answer God's call. But the Spirit's not just active at conversion. He empowers us to live for God too. And Paul tells them that they began with the Spirit, but now they've moved on to the flesh to try and perfect themselves. They've ditched the Spirit and are now trying to live for God by their own efforts, the flesh. You see, legalism really is an expression of the flesh. No? Okay. Oh, here we go. Hey. So the goal is not to find somewhere in the middle, but actually legalism... It's actually just the flesh. That's what he's been showing us. It's been trying by your own efforts. But the implication is they should have carried on in the Spirit's power, being led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And what we see here in verse 16 is a statement of fact and a promise. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now here, the desires of the flesh takes on the other side of flesh's meaning, sin. So as we see in the list of the works from the flesh, which follows, actually the other side as well, license, is also the flesh. So if we're trying to find balance between those two, we've got a big problem. Because all we're doing is actually finding a balance between flesh and flesh. How can both ends, both extremes on the spectrum be the flesh? Because the flesh is a subtle enemy. And because both ends of the spectrum are about self. You see, the flesh is all me, me, me. That's what it's about. Self-reliance on one end and self-indulgence on the other. Self-justification on one end and self-gratification on the other. It's all self. One commentator said that if you take flesh, you cross off the H and you spell it backwards, you get self. See your head's working that through. It does work. But the real battle isn't legalism versus sin. The real battle is flesh versus spirit, self versus spirit. And that's one that takes place in every believer. And the goal, again, is not balance. We don't want to be a bit sinful and a a bit spiritual. It's a battle. Those things are opposed, opposed to each other. Paul wants us to walk by the spirit and crucify the flesh. They're opposed to each other. Here we go. Here we go. Flesh and spirit. They're nearly there. Nearly there. There we go. So the goal is not to, to be a bit spirit and a bit flesh. They're opposed to each other. In fact, he tells us when we became believers, we crucified the flesh. We're just waiting for it to die now. It's like it's hanging up there. 
And while we're waiting for it, he calls us. The flesh calls to us, trying to get us to do what it wants, trying to keep us from doing the things that we want to do. It sounds very like Romans 7, doesn't it? Romans 7, 15. I'll just read it to you. For I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not do, what I, so I do what I do not want to do, but I do the very thing that I do not want to do. So we need to stop listening to the flesh and walk by the Spirit. Where does the flesh want to lead us? Well, it can lead us to the legalistic side, but the license side perhaps is the more obvious. And so our second point, flesh-driven actions, verses 19 to 21. If you glance down there from 19 to 21, he lists off all these different works of the flesh and tells us that they're, they're evident, they're, they're obvious. These are things that are mutually exclusive to walking by the Spirit. Now, he's not saying, here are seven deadly sins. If you do these, you'll be damned. What he's saying is it's blatantly obvious, guys, what you shouldn't, should and shouldn't be doing. What you should be embracing and what you should be avoiding if you're walking by the Spirit. Think about what the Spirit wants and do that. These are the opposite. Now, he hasn't given us this list to shout at people in the streets. Actually expects that the world outside the church will behave like this. But what he's saying is these things have no place in the church because we're spirit-led people. Now, from the context of the letter, I don't think the people in Galatia are struggling with these too much. They're more struggling with the legalism. But every Christian struggles with these in some part, don't we? It's a battle. And I imagine, though, he's wanting them to understand that when he's telling them to abandon legalism, he's not saying return to your old ways. Don't return to your old life in the world. He wants to make it crystal clear that the message of the gospel is not a license to sin a charge that gets thrown in him from time to time. He wants to show them that freedom does not mean a moral free-for-all. We're going to go through the works of the flesh here, but on the whole, they're pretty obvious as we go through. The problem is not letting them infiltrate our life, isn't it? So he starts with sexual uh, deeds, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Sexual immorality is the word pornea, it's where we get our word pornography from. But it's basically any sexual activity that's not between a husband and a wife. When Paul is writing to more raucous places like Corinth, he does spell things out more uh, explicitly so there's less confusion. In 1 Corinthians, he explains this as adultery, acting improperly when you're only engaged, sexual relations with family members, homosexual sexual relationships, using prostitutes, inappropriately burning with lust. They were really quite messed up in Corinth that he had to spell those things out. But here he's happy to just state it more broadly. The danger with legalists, though, if you give them a specific list, is that they try and get round it, don't they? And Paul's aware of that, uh, and we'll come to that uh, at the end. But if you're asking the question, things like, is it technically sexual immorality? Then you've probably already lost the plot, haven't you? And you're almost certainly not walking the way of the spirit. Sexual immorality is a work of the flesh. But it's not just sexual activity, though. Paul broadens it out. Impurity is listed. It might be the way that we talk. It might be the way that we think. It might be the way that we text. That's becoming a big one. The way that we joke, 
the things that we watch. Again, I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. That's sort of against what Paul is, is doing. But the Spirit leads us into purity, not impurity. The final one in this section is sensuality. It's not clear exactly where the Greek word comes from, but it, it seems to have the idea of not being chased, not being controlled, a sort of letting go, losing control. It's something you give yourself over to. In other translations, it's translated as indecency, promiscuity, wild living, debauchery. That is not walking in the spirit. That is living to please the flesh. But Paul doesn't just have the sexual in mind. He also has the spiritual in mind too. So we see sexual deeds and we see spiritual deeds. Idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry in Greek is idolatria, which is exactly what you'd expect, isn't it? It means the worship of idols. Jesus broadened this out to talk about things like the love of money. Anything that we worship other than God is our idol. It doesn't have to be a statue. What is it that you're gambling your life on to get you through? What are the things you depend on to get you through the day? That's often your idol. In this culture, though, that he's writing to, it is more likely statues uh, that he's talking about, though, with the same effect. They relied on them day by day. Sorcery is the word pharma, pharma, um, I'm not very good at my pronunciation today, uh, pharmakia, uh, which is where we get our word pharmaceuticals from. Uh, and in the first place, it does mean drugs. Uh, I read one commentary this week claiming that it was drug addiction, but really that's reading back our setting into that, that world. Uh, really, sorcery fits better, because when it's next to idolatry, it, it's not next to drunkenness. It sort of put the two uh, together. Sorcerers in those days were not like Doctor Strange on the Marvel films, more like what we think of as witch doctors. They sold potions and spells to deal with people, uh, people's situations in life. They claimed to be able to call on spirits to help too, and to call curses on people, or to lift one's place placed on others. They claimed to be able to contact the dead. And these sort of people still exist, don't they? Look in the local paper for ads for mediums and clairvoyance, or people selling magic crystals. It's still there, it's just something that the people of God shouldn't have anything to do with. So there's the sexual, there's the spiritual, but there's also a social aspect to the deeds of the flesh. We see their enmity and strife. Enmity is the hatred uh, that people have towards other people. Strife in the Bible is sometimes translated rivalry, setting yourself up against people, trying to compete against others, even when you're supposed to be on the same team. Some translations translate it quarrelling. Jealousy is there too. It's zealous. It's bad jealousy. Not the kind that God and we can legitimately have sometimes. This is a bad jealousy linked to that competing that we were just talking about. A baseless jealousy that tries to make other people our, our possessions or uh, property. It's like those schoolgirls who, you know, they can't be your friend because they're my friend and they're my best friend. It's that sort of thing, but a grown-up or less than grown-up idea of that. Not a godly thing. Linked with that is fits of anger, which could be translated wrath or rage. It's that flying off the handle. It's having a temper. You can see that it's to do with the flesh, can't you, rather than the spirit. So we have social deeds. We also have separating deeds. Rivalries. The, the difference between this one is this one is a sort of a, a working against one another actively. 
trying to split people into groups. It's linked with dissensions, which is next. It means to stand apart or to stand in two camps. As though, you know, when you have that situation where they say, well, I'm not joining in with this. You get on with it. I'm going to stand aside. That's that dissension idea. Um, refusing to be in the camp of people uh, who are actually doing stuff. Divisions. The Greek word here is heresies. But usually the word means a sect or a faction. And that's how it's usually used in the New Testament. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are referred to in that way. Now, of course, heresy is a terrible thing, and the rest of the Bible speaks of it, but here it's more the idea of separating out into groups, factionalism. It's a product of the flesh, not the spirit. Envy. This carries the idea of ill will more than jealousy, really. It's bearing a grudge. It's thinking of someone or a group of people as bad by default, possibly because of their success, but it could be for other reasons too. It's again something that divides people, even churches, into factions. It's a work of the flesh. And then finally, ooh, long list, isn't it? <laughs> Seducing deeds. These are things like drunkenness um, and orgies. Now there it says, not drinking, but drunkenness. Christians might, for various reasons, decide to be completely teetotal, but it's drunkenness that's a work of the flesh. And that's what we're to avoid. Orgies? Well, I mean, it says it's an obvious list, doesn't it? But there, you're pretty obvious that Christians are to avoid those things. And then if we're in any confusion, it tells us, and things like this. It's not even an exhaustive list, even though it's taken us a while to get through. We're told, though, that people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not be there in heaven or the new creation. Why? Because they didn't keep the rules? Is that it? No. Because it's blatantly obvious that if you live like this, that you don't have the Holy Spirit. All of us will fall in these areas from time to time. It's a battle that we're in. We're, we're there to fight. And whilst the war is won, it doesn't mean that every skirmish will end in victory. But if this is our persistent and consistent behaviour then we're fooling ourselves that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Because if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That way of life that's described here was crucified when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, verse 24. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. If we're carrying on with these sorts of things, then something is seriously, seriously wrong. We may not be walking by the Spirit at all. For most of us, though, it's the case, like I say, that we'll fall into these things sometimes, but they're things that we try and keep away from, that we avoid. Forgiveness is there if we fall in these things. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient, even for this list. But we must be those who are turning away from these things, repenting of these things, and walking by the Spirit. So what does it mean then to walk by the Spirit? What's the positive version of this? Well, that's our last heading, Spirit-grown attitudes. Let me read you from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law, 
and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Now, what comes next should come as a mild shock to us in a way. Or maybe not if we've been following through the letter so far that Paul's been writing. He's contrasted flesh and spirit. He's given us the works of the flesh. Well, surely now the next obvious thing is the works of the spirit. What are the deeds, actions, works that the spirit leads us to? But he doesn't. Instead, he gives us the fruit of the spirit. And in fact, if you notice, it doesn't contain any actions at all. They're concerned with the people that we are rather than the things that we do. Their attitudes rather than actions or activities. He could have said, the fruit of the Spirit are going to church, giving to charity, praying three times a day. And you know the legalists in Galatia would have loved that, wouldn't they? At last, a tick list. We knew you are one of us really, Paul. But think about it. This is in massive contrast to the way that they were thinking. This is a massive contrast to the basic principles of the world that Paul has been talking about. It has more to do with our heart attitudes than our outward behaviour. Outward behaviour can be faked, can't it? Let me put it to you this way. How does this compare with the basic principles of the world? Well, how do you spot a true Muslim according to their faith? Well, they recite their profession of faith daily. They pray five times a day. They give money to charity, they fast during Ramadan, and they make pilgrimages to Mecca. That's their five pillars. What's the Christian equivalent? How do you spot a true Christian, according to Paul? Well, they are supernaturally loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. When you put those things side by side, you see how truly radical and subversive to the way of the world this is. This is not a new set of rules to tick off. This is not a stepladder to heaven. This has more to do with the Holy Spirit changing our character to be more like Christ. Now, these false teachers have been saying, if you want to know if someone's a proper Christian, well, look and see if they've had an operation on their private parts. It doesn't work for women, does it? But... Paul says, don't look there, look here. Look at their heart. Is the spirit changing them? Is the spirit changing us? Are we becoming more like Christ? Because that's what Paul says is the sign of a believer. And if you're becoming more gentle, then you're not going to be lashing out in fits of anger. If you're becoming more self-controlled, you're not going to be going out and getting drunk. If you're becoming more kind, then you're not going to be involved in enmity and strife, in rivalries and dissensions. We almost don't need a list of the works of the flesh, do we? Because, as Paul has already said, they're the opposite of what the Spirit wants. Now, Paul's not here saying that everyone who seems gentle, self-controlled and loving is a Christian. But what he is saying is that if you profess to know Christ... If you profess to have the spirit living inside you, then this is what you will be like. 
This is that continuation of the positive vision that Paul gave us for the Christian life. And do you notice that all of them are actually aimed at how we interact with one another? Love, agape, that self-giving love that God has for us that we are now to show to others. Joy, kara, that rejoicing that goes deep down and is rooted in Christ. It's the opposite of being what, uh, grumpy with people. That's basically the, the, the up and down of it. Peace, Irene, one who makes peace with others. Almost the opposite of that dividing and competing ideas that we heard before. Patience, a word I can't pronounce, but having a long temper. Almost the opposite of fits of rage with a short temper. It's long temper, literally. Kindness, Christotes, it literally means usefulness. It's the kind of person who will help you when you're in need. That's kindness. Goodness, agathosune, both carrying a moral flavour akin to purity, but also a beneficial flavour, as in, he does me good. Do we do one another good? Faithfulness, pistis, trustworthiness in character. Do we do what we say we will do? Can we rely on one another? That's that faithfulness word. Gentleness, proutes. It's the same as it is in English, really. Do we snap back at people? Are we harsh with people? Or are we mild and gentle? Christ uses this word of himself, gentleness. Self-controlled, egkratia. Under rule, in control of oneself. This is someone who thinks before they act. Not losing control or, or reckless with others, but self-controlled. Are these the things that characterise us as a fellowship? Are these the things that characterise us as individual believers? Not our activities, but our attitudes. Now, activities flow from attitudes, don't they? Acts of love, acts of kindness. But God wants these to come from the heart he wants to change who we are, not just what we do. But if you think about it, that is a much longer, slower process than producing a new rule book or just chopping off a bit of skin. We so often, don't we, look for the silver bullet in the Christian life. It's hard, isn't it, as we become being moulded like that uh, plasticine earlier. We look for the silver bullet, but sanctification is a long and slow process done by the Spirit in our lives, and helped by one another as we work together, as we live together. It's a walk we take with the Spirit. It's a walk, not a sprint. A walk we take with others. I often think of these pictures like we're walking alone, but the Bible always has us walking together as a fellowship. And our challenge together is verse 25, to keep in step with the Spirit. To walk where he walks. To go at the pace that he would have us go. The spirit guides us. Sometimes supernaturally, yes. But most of the time it's much simpler. The spirits put it here in writing. How do I keep in step with the spirit today? By being loving. By being joyful. By being peaceable. By being patient. By being kind. By being goodly. By being faithful by being gentle, by being self-controlled. It's not rocket science, is it? So many of our quandaries 
in life as a Christian would be solved if we just thought about these fruit instead of trying to find balance or the middle ground. Putting it together with what we saw last week, what is our, what is our life all about? What are our lives about? Not balance, but giving ourselves 100% to God. Serving him by serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Through love, we serve one another. How do we serve? Lovingly, joyfully, peaceably, I'm going to keep going, patiently, kindly, wholesomely, faithfully, gently, controlling myself, not serving myself, following after the one who came not to be served, but to serve. There is a balance that we need to strike uh, so that we don't burn out, but it's not a balance with sin or legalism. It's not finding some middle ground. And Paul will help us think about that in chapter 6. We'll come back to that later in the year, but feel free to read ahead. But for now, let's pray that God would help us in that God would grow us together in the fruit of the Spirit so that we might serve one another in all those ways. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you that he lives inside us and he is changing us. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to listen to him. Father, that we would walk with him at the pace he would have us go. Father, changes we pray, we all feel not what we should be. We all feel our sin. We all feel the deeds of the flesh that so easily can, can infiltrate our lives. But Father, help us walk by the Spirit. Give us that strength that we need. And Father, help us to be patient as you change us day by day, week by week, month by month. Father, help us to become more like your son, the Lord Jesus, who showed us all these things, uh, all the most loving person, kind person. Father, help us to keep looking to him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in a few moments